Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. I'm here today with Eva Knowles, who is a remedial therapist and breathing educator. She specializes in musculoskeletal health and she provides treatment, prevention and long-term care of the back, neck and shoulder for the aches and pains we get as we go through life. As a health professional, she coaches and mentors clients to understand the five key drivers of health and to use three essential steps to get their spark back and keep it. She is also a breathing educator, and she gets to share the benefits of breathing right, which sounds pretty bizarre, but in actual fact, most of us don't breathe right, do we, Eva? Thank you for coming on the podcast, and welcome. (laughs) Thanks, Karen. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me to spend some time with you. I want to find out a little bit about how you ended up where you are, because you've had a path through all sorts of health disciplines, haven't you? Start me at the beginning and tell me how you finished up here, and particularly how you finished up with the breathing side of things. Well, I guess I started with curiosity. So ever since I was little, nature just fascinated me, and I thought, you know, how does it work? What's what's the ant doing? Oh, what's this round thing? Gee, that's an egg, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess the first time that I encountered anything to do with lung was a biology class. And we talked about organisms. We talked about lungs. And I went to my mother and said, look, could you get me a lung from the butcher? I'd like to take it into class for show and tell. Of course you did. How old were you? Oh, maybe eight. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so... I still remember being fascinated how light it was and how it was floating. You put it in water and it wouldn't sink. Whereas, you know, you put a piece of steak in there, it just goes to the bottom. (laughs) It's that crazy curiosity that always sort of took me different paths. And I stayed engaged with that. I took it into a science degree. I um, started off as an ethologist, which is animal behaviour, actually, which meant observing and bringing that observational skill then into a science degree meant you started to combine things and that led to to health, which is, again, observation. So when I started to enter the workforce, it was actually as mental health. So I had trained, I'd got that science degree and I did my training in musculoskeletal management and then I worked for a mental health team, which was back to the behaviour and to the observation. And that led into how can I assist people through the body, through the mind, to get in touch with themselves. So it was lucky that program actually recognized the potential of the human touch as helping people who had emotional difficulties and psychological issues to open up to themselves and to the practitioner. So I used to be sent all the people that were a bit stuck. I'd work with them and they'd take whatever came up for them back into their sessions. It was just great. So that's the whole connection. And with it, of course, if you think what happens emotionally to the breath. So there was the breath work too. And 
we all know about the meditation and the calmness and how that expresses itself and how the breath can also reflect where you're at. Then I went into private practice and expanded it and took on all sorts of extra things, including actually teaching people, but not from a mindfulness meditative side, but from where is the body, what's the mechanism, how does it work, Where's that input that we have? Explain what Bowen therapy is before I go into the breathing, just briefly. Even does Bowen therapy and the Bateco breathing. Very difficult to explain Bowen therapy as such. There's so many different interpretations, but maybe it satisfies to say it's a soft tissue approach to musculoskeletal problems. It's very gentle. One of the hallmarks is that it uses what's called a therapeutic pause. This is also what people are familiar with in acupuncture. You place the needles, you leave the body to organize itself. You often get that also in osteopathy or in chiropractic work. You rest, you leave the body. So Bowen does this hands only and it's a cross fiber approach. And really, we all regenerate. If we weren't able to regenerate, we wouldn't be able to glide through life. So giving that feedback to the body of where it is in space and time and its potential, where it can go, and to basically encourage it to go back on track according to its ability, programming, health, status, hydration, rest, etc. So you bring all of it together to assist the body to self-regulate again. And the breathing, how did you get into the Bateco breathing? Explain what that is. Bateka breathing is a breathing method that was discovered about 60 or so years ago by a Russian doctor who himself was experiencing a lot of high blood pressure. And as a young doctor, he was basically put out there and told, okay, go look after it, find something, what can we do? And I suppose the background there would be, if we're looking at East and West Division, in Russia, you didn't have a lot of pharmacology you didn't have all the chemistry available that the west was going for so they had to look at other possibilities of assisting that self-regulation rather than dropping a chemical into it what else could you do to utilize within the organism and so he became aware of the breathing like so many others have over thousands of years and realized that The person that was the sickest was breathing the fastest. So he fine-tuned that a bit better and then came to develop an approach whereby you help your, your body to keep a very stable pH. So pH of the blood is quite crucial. If you're thinking of any reactions that have to take place, They need to have an environment in which they can thrive. And through our breathing, we can actually facilitate that to keep that optimal bracket functional for the red blood vessels. And with that, you get your oxygen delivery to the tissue, which then also means all your metabolic pathways are running, all your enzymes are functioning. If that gets dysregulated, you're either too acidic or too alkaline, We've heard all that, and usually if it's on either end of that safe bracket, you have an experience of unwellness or disease. The breath is one of the quickest buffers. That's something that you use to bring your 
acid base back under control. So it helps to stabilize. And it's the CO2 in our breath that is the first line of buffering our blood pH. After that, you've got your minerals and your nutrients. on So that's why nutrition is also very important. So why do we breathe quicker when we're sicker? Because there's a dysregulation and we're trying to get back on top of it, but it ends up in this crazy feedback loop that doesn't quite function and it becomes a runaway train. And then as you get that runaway train, you start to experience what's called the non-communicative diseases, which we see that turn up as we get older, sort of menopause, postmenopausal, you know, blood pressure issues. We get all sorts of diabetes, poor sleep, sleep apnea, etc. Those dysregulations are actually a reflection that your internal environment is out of sorts. And I thought maybe what we could do is I'll tell you a little story. And we'll start at the beginning and we'll look at how does the structure, the function, how does this whole musculoskeletal system and the breath go hand in hand to actually create life. If we go through that, I guess I want to start with, and I've just got a few points there, that what's important to me is also to start with a disclaimer. I think people need to know that our recording isn't a training program and they're not recommendations. They're simply an exploration. It's a sharing. It's a bringing in different ideas, bringing them together, giving you something you can reflect on because it's all about learning, exploring, being receptive and expanding your horizon so that you can meet your potential. And if you're looking across disciplines, this is such a rich field. So I'll be plucking up bits from all sorts of things, but none of them are medical recommendations. So if we call on that, that's yep. progress. We're great. So we're looking at uh, the wellness. We want to be able to be well and we want to age well. That really means that life in, in general is a balance. As I said, you've got to keep your, your biochemistry functioning and balanced. And essentially what that is, things come in and things come out. So the things that need to come into the system, in the first instance, your air, then your water, then your food. And that seems to be the level of priority because you can go without food quite a bit. Drinking, yeah, not quite as long. Air, not much time there. We're beginning, of course, with fertilization. We're beginning with that newborn, with that egg being fertilized. And as it travels from the fallopian tube down into the uterus, where it then settles, there really isn't any air in there. So we've got the two cells that merged and life begins in an environment of low oxygen and high CO2. Interesting, isn't it? I didn't know that. So that high CO2 is, is actually very useful for cell division. So it just divides like crazy in that CO2 environment. There are some thoughts, aren't they? Yeah. Because we yeah. focus on oxygen. It's all about we getting do. the oxygen in. We never think about the CO2. But That's CO2 right. is bad. <laughs> bad. Just imagine we had all these oxygen bubbles rising from the uterus at the fallopian tube like, oops, that would be a bit different. <laughs> you know, this, this is not like a fish tank where you get the oxygenator in there. <laughs> but it has to be, has to be wet. 
So the moisture is really important. There's our second element. That's that water. That can actually take quite a few weeks before it gets a blood supply. And then when that blood supply is established from that first blood vessel, and here comes the, the estrogen really encourages that. It actually helps to promote and create blood vessels. We get this little pulse, so it bulges out and there's the heart and then this pulsation begins. With that pulsation, we also get shape. And it's the pulsation that actually gives the, the baby's head shape. And when I first heard that, I thought, far out. Here we have a fluid pulsating. And if you think of your cappuccino and you have your cream on the top and you give it that little touch, now you see the movement of the water giving shape. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So here we've got that too. The water is actually shifting the solids and by transporting the solids, be they nutrients, be they your cappuccino froth, doesn't matter, it creates shape. Now, we have the nutrients, we have the water. What gives it the energy is the air, and that's back to the breathing. So at this point of development, we're now having to plug into the mother's ability to breathe, and that's where progesterone kicks in. And progesterone is actually a bronchodilator. And you go, oh, now that makes sense. We'll just get her to, you know, keep it up, mum to bring in that oxygen so we can just shape the solids together with the fluids and create ourselves. That's quite amazing. So clever. That, that is so clever, yeah. yeah. That is, that is clever. That, that's what I thought too. By about the second trimester, the child, the fetus, is now taking its first breath. Now, it's not connected to the outside world, but the lungs are far enough developed, the chest is far enough developed, it'll actually... Here's the musculoskeletal movement coming in. So now it's practicing that musculoskeletal movement to facilitate breathing. That's stimulated by the amount of CO2 within the amniotic fluid. When there's hypoxia, when there's insufficient oxygen being supplied, the fetus will just stop and go, hmm, that's interesting. Well, it doesn't make much sense because what's the point of moving? As we're moving, we're burning oxygen to create the movement. If it's not coming in, you better stop moving, isn't it? So they got that connection already. What's driving the breath? And in us adults, what's driving the breath is the CO2 in the cerebrospinal fluid. That's what makes us take the next breath to self-regulate the biochemistry again. So it's so not the oxygen in the, the lungs. It's the CO2. In the spinal fluid. Yes. My goodness. We have these other oxygen sensors that sit around here on the carotid artery. So they check the stuff that's going up there. Has it actually got oxygen in it? If it hasn't, hey, heart, wait a minute. We're not getting it at the rate. Can you pump a little bit quicker? So you've got that merging of circulation and respiration. But at the unborn, we haven't quite got that. So it's very dependent. And if we're talking about the mother's input, this is already a teaching environment for the mother. Can she breathe in such a way that that oxygen supply is nice and steady and that it's nourishing? So quite often as we get more and more pregnant, you know, the baby sort of comes back up here and we go, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> I can't breathe. Yeah. Uh, can't breathe. Right? Yeah. 
So we've got the bronchodilator, but it also speeds us up a bit. And there's this crazy runaway thing again. Can you realize that, oh, you're already pumping for two, maybe you do a little bit less of all the external stuff that also makes you speed up. So here's the point of reflection on mum again. Can you keep your calm so that you don't hyperventilate? Because if you hyperventilate, it actually means less oxygen in the system and your baby's going to suffer. So without a baby, if you keep hyperventilating, but that's okay. You know, you'll eventually pass out and reset. That's okay. Mind you, you don't want to hit your head and that's not a cool outcome. But, you know, it goes like that. So realizing what's happening, appreciating it, and having that input of self-regulation. So if we're going now from that unborn and we'll go through the birth, da-da-da, and here it is, we've got this lovely infant, everything went well, it's its first breath, it's going really good, and here we are, we're lying on our backs and starting to explore. We can't do much. So at that stage at the newborn, your rib cage, the, the ribs actually sit parallel. I think that probably the benefit of that is to get out of the way for all that gut to develop and to do all that nutritional absorption and to just make more of the body because it's all supplied anyway, so you don't really need much. As the baby gets to move, as the the newborn gets to move, gradually the ribs start to take this shape and you get that drop-down rib cage. But that only happens if you find your core. How do you find your core? You do baby pilates. What's baby Pilates? Well, you end up with a neutral spine because you really can't do much else at that point. And you bring your leg up into the chest. That's Pilates. Nobody instructed it. So you get that core going. And that core is what helps to create also the tension that you need for ventilation. So as it progresses and turns and does all these things, the shape changes the strength cups in, the respiration increases. And as you know, the little ones carry on for an hour or two and they go all out, everything's all over the place. And you think, oh, my God, you know, and then suddenly, boom, bang, sleep. Well, of course, because you've just exhausted yourself, so you need to regenerate. So life is this balance. You need to go all out, but never to the point where you cannot replenish. So that's quite an important one. And the replenishing happens then in that sleep that it needs. Having exercised so hard, you also promote the ventilation perfusion, which means that you're working hard, the air comes in, and and because the oxygen comes into that tissue, our blood vessels, they're like searching and they go, woo, we can pick it up, and they're growing right into it because their oxygen is there. So later in life, we need that too. You need to keep it going Because otherwise, if there's nothing to pick up, your blood vessels will atrophy. What's the point of growing? There's a waste of energy if there's nothing to collect, right? So here we go. We drive the tissue. We reach for it. We're going for all that oxygen exchange. All's working well. We're growing up and developing nicely. But during that toddler stage, we get a cold. Now we're stuffed. All right. So instead of... Using our nose, the mouth starts to open and trouble starts. So if you're going back to the child that feeds on the breast and does it best, it's the one that can actually suck onto the nipple, hold it in there and ventilate through nose only. The one that has a stuffy nose 
comes on and off the nipple the whole time. It gets frustrated, exhausted because it can't coordinate the swallowing and the breathing because it's congested. So that creates another behavior around the breathing. That behavior can continue despite the fact that the head cold is gone. So there's no further exploration. It just got used to mouth open, so it does the mouth open. Toddlers also copy. So if we're saying takeaway message for everybody, please zip it unless you're talking or eating. Use your nose only. That's the optimal way. That's how you set up. And in fact, one nostril does it. You don't even need two. But just as a backup, we've got another one. So should you do alternate breathing? Should you practice that? It's a good thing. And that comes out of yoga. That is a, a specific purpose why you would do that. What I'm looking at is the breathing when you don't do yoga or anything else. What's the day-to-day, moment-to-moment breath? Not the, I can do this as well and I'll take time out to just focus on that particular breath. That's not going to get you to work or, you know, facilitate while you're doing a painting. It's the moment-to-moment regulation that matters. Because if you stuff that up, you have to then regain control somehow. So why not just keep it going at a more even keel? It's interesting because now you're saying that, I remember you saying to me one time, I was in your office and filling in a form, and you said, oh, well done. You closed your mouth when you did that. <laughs> it's like, what? I mean, it was the first or second time I'd been in to see you. I'm like, oh, why is that so important? But now you've just explained it to me because I wasn't thinking, I was just focusing on what I was doing and my mouth closed. I'm one of those kids that, as you know, I had constant snotty nose and sore throat. So I don't breathe properly. You know, I struggle to keep my mouth closed, but I did close my mouth when I was was doing my writing. So that was good. (laughs) That That was a tick. And actually, this is one of the interesting parts. So Yes, I do get the people to fill in the forms in my presence because as you concentrate and the writing, that takes extra resources. And that's often where the person either stops breathing, they go, (gasps) (laughs) or they'll go, yeah. Any of those, and that's a sign of the intensity. That's a sign that you've switched from cool, relaxed, contained, attentive to sympathetic. This is like, ooh, mm, mm, mm. too much going on. So the emergency part of your nervous system sets it, and that drives you into upper respiratory behavior. If your pen is so sticky that you can't roll that ball off the paper, you should get a new one. It shouldn't need that much effort, okay? So you can check with your kids too. That's an indicator. Are they relaxed doing their homework or whatever, or is it a mm, experience for them? So here's your first opportunity of, of teaching, and also the toddler will mimic you. If you sit there constantly stress breathing, they'll go, oh, so that's how it's done. Everybody does that. So they'll copy the way you breathe. They'll copy your language. They'll copy everything. And, you know, everybody thinks funny if they use a swear word. They don't even know what this thing is. Gets a reaction. Cool, I'll do that. Whether it's good or not, they don't know. 
So here again, as part of the motherhood, there's your input. Look at it. Teach them. Already in the womb, you're teaching them. And now we're getting to another form of teaching. You hit the teenage years. There's a whole lot of growth going on again. And all our... They all look like they can't control their extremities for a while, don't they? You know, they're just arms and legs all over the place. That That's right. And so the sex hormones that are coming in and pulsating quite strong and building up, they're also facilitating the neurological development. So they're having an effect on the brain as well. And they're affecting how you interconnect the various neurons and dendrites and so they were actually looking at the dendrites during the ovulation phase and it's quite different to the other part of the menstrual cycle so there's a lot of connectivity suddenly a lot of readiness also in the brain to figure out it makes sense you need to figure out where is my mate I'm ready do I find one and which one you need to have your facilities about you because, you know, this is really important. And picking a mate is not necessarily a conscious thing. There's a lot of subconscious cueing going on. Olfaction is really important, so smell. And if you think of the males, they're really pumping it out. And if you go into it, yeah? Teenage boys are a bit whiffy. Yeah, I mean, you've got, a, you've got a signal across a couple of paddocks that you're here and you're ready. <laughs> I remember the boys' headmaster at um, when they were at school. He said in assembly one day that he'd given four boys a lift home from the footy match, and he said, I was really sorry that I only had four windows to wind down. <laughs> So there is a lot of turnover and there's a lot of exchange through the skin as well at that time because that's at one of our elimination pathways. Well, there are all sorts of funky experiments out there like giving women T-shirts of, of various to smell and which one they like best. And it turned out that the T-shirts worn by a hunky bloke was preferred to her, right? Never got to see the bloke. Interesting. Isn't that interesting? So there's a yeah, different smell depending on amount of muscle, is it? Or That's size? right. So wow. The amount of testosterone that you're putting out. And testosterone, of course, is also there for muscle growth. So if you look at the boys, how they're packing it on, their desire at that age too, they want to go in the gym and they want to be muscly and they want to have that biceps and daddy, daddy, dad. But they mustn't do it too early because if that isn't there in the tissue and you're loading it incorrectly, they can actually hurt themselves. So you've got these conflicting drives going on. The brain says, I'm ready. This is what I need. This is what I desire. The body is halfway there. And I remember doing experiments during our science. We looked at the hormones, et cetera, et cetera. And we had these little roosters in a confined space with food and a drinking dish behind a wall and in the front of the wall was a mirror and so this cute little rooster would kind of go past the mirror and think it was another rooster and kind of go oh what are you doing here oh. and then we would inject them with testosterone you should have seen it they grew twice as big fluffed up and attacked that mirror like you wouldn't believe to the point they forgot where their food and their drink was it makes you bigger stronger beyond reality but also it's a hyper focus 
So when they go all cute in just a computer game or whatever, that's also part of it. It does something to our brains. So if you think in the larger cycle again, yeah, we, we need that because, you know, we need to reproduce. And if you think in the wild, the animals, a male needs to be able to live through that reproductive season. So he's got to be strong and he's got to be focused. There's no grazing around. You've got a job to do here. You've got to defend and you've got to mate. That's a big thing. So if we're looking now into the female, what goes on female, there too, there's a lot of growth. There's a lot of reprogramming. There's a lot of trying to find rhythm, menstrual rhythm, but also wake time, sleep time, and both we can see that there's sleep, they need more sleep, but the time has shifted. The whole circadian rhythm is kind of queer for them. With female, what happens, they don't get boofy, but their pelvises widen. And as their pelvises widen, the angle at which the hip comes down to the knee changes. And so now you see these girls that sort of 15, 16, they go into sport and have knee aches and pains. Or even if they're not sporty, they often have knee trouble. So this is part of the growth pattern that you see where the body is changing. And in athletes, during the menstrual cycle, again, around around ovulation, not a good time to have high performance gains, etc. You need to back off a bit because the ligaments soften in the presence of estrogen, particularly in the knees. This is a good thing, again, if you think of pregnancy, we want the estrogen, we want everything to be stretchy because at the end we need to give birth, we have to widen, we have to let go, we need to be pliable, flexible. So they found that with the athletes too, if they put them on the pill, they did better. Progesterone actually tightened up the tendons, so they had less knee injuries. So if you're thinking of the tendons as such, and we'll come to that once more when we go into the menopausal phase of life, you need to have that firmness because the function of a tendon is actually to store energy. Energy storage in form of elasticity. So you've got your elastic band. If it's too stiff, it'll break. If it's too sloppy, it can't recoil. So there needs to be a certain integrity within that connective tissue, within that collagen. that spares you from having to create the movement all the time with muscle because muscle is high energy consumption. And remember we said things go in and things come out. So if it's movement that needs to be generated, utilizing your breathing, you don't want to be working hard all the time. So what we're doing here is the whole elasticity in the chest. It now gets sprung also with the tendons and the ligaments and the connective tissue so that you don't have to use your fatiguing muscles (laughs) to keep breathing. So you hand a lot of it into the recoil, into the springiness, which you have developed during your developing ages. And they're actually saying that the tendons don't change much after puberty. Wow, okay. Once you've got them, that's about it. The only thing they do is get a bit more brittle at the other end. Does that mean, is the implication of that the more exercise you do when you're younger to exercise your ribcage and everything, the better it is for you in later in life. Is that the correct interpretation? That is an opportunity for you, but not excessively. And unfortunately, we tend to do everything excessively because we get this hyper-focus, whatever. So you need to move it. If you, if you don't move it, you know, it gets sluggish. And if it's sluggish, then you don't have that good things in and production out anymore you start to 
stagnate and it becomes brittle. So if we're looking at connective tissue too and the aging process, we're getting past that peak after about 30. We're starting to slide in the 40s. We're going into that perimenopausal and you should have done all your reproduction already. So as human beings, we take a lot of time to mature and we're the only species that as grandparents invest our energy into the offspring, into the grandchildren. Other species don't do that. So as a grandparent, what happens there is you no longer need the food and convert it into reproductive opportunity. You can now make that energy available to look after the grandchildren or by supporting the children in the raising of the grandchildren. And so, you know, we haven't got the time, but there are different ways of organizing a society that would facilitate this even more. And in some of the so-called natural settings, this is what really happens. But the advantage there is that that all the generation is moving. So if we're staying with breathing and moving, they're not going to sit in the armchair in a nursing home. They're actively participating still in the rearing. So they're invested in that next generation. So now your investment, although you're not that flexible anymore, the opportunity to participate and to move, despite the fact that your receptor sites on your organs has declined, so when you're thinking back into why can't I enjoy my red wine anymore, your liver function has changed, your hormones are starting to change proportion to each other, male or female, that happens, males lose muscles, but also the organs no longer respond in the same way to the bit of hormone that is in the bloodstream. So now you have a function, a structure that changes, and you have to give it a different function. So that function can be in movement, but movement with a different meaning. You're not going to run to win the race here. Adapting the type of exercise that you do to actually match the energy that you have available and to direct it into where it's necessary. When people don't do that, when they don't match oxygen coming in, and we saw that in the infant, when the act of breathing becomes dysregulated, the whole internal environment starts to become dysregulated. And it's at that stage again that we see these non-communicative diseases kicking in like blood pressure, poor sleep, regulating the breath gives you a chance to support what your biochemistry is doing. There's also that going on HRT early enough can actually help to spare some of the brain degradation that sets in when the hormones start to decline a bit. So where that window is and, and exactly what type, that's a much more specialised discussion to have with a different profession. but. There is that implication again also with progesterone. There was research that people with closed head injuries, if they're given progesterone, that actually protects them. It helps to drain that fluid. And I think, wow. So there's a lot into how much fluid do we hold? When do we hold it? The, the whole game, the whole playing field changes. And we're trying to live as though we're still 30 but we don't know that all these changes are taking place. We're just in the space of, well, I'm, I'm getting a bit older. I'm going through menopause. We don't actually have any usable, applicable knowledge 
that says to us, okay, now I'm here and this is where everything's at. And so this is what's going to suit me or this is what's going to make me feel good. That's not going to make me feel very good. We don't really have that knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Yes, and, and we're not allowed to age in our society. We're all expected to live forever, to stay fit and healthy and to be active. The thing is, where along the bookshelf, which volume are you reading? What's the purpose of that section? Where does it fit in into the life cycle? You know, you, you come in pretty sloppy wet, but you go out dry and brittle to make it easier to integrate again. You know, it goes round and round. So even your skin goes dry and all this vitamin D stuff we're talking about, the collagen changes. We don't hold the water the way we did. So that solar system that we've got on doesn't work properly either. It's changed. So we need to think around that and go, right, how can I nourish it? How can I look after it? What are my resources? Oxygen in, oxygen out. What's your hydration? Really, really important. What nutrients? How do these nutrients affect me? Because our endocrine system, the hormones, they're really another way of sensing both the internal and the uh, external environment. And that's what helps you to adapt. And we don't allow ourselves to adapt. This is your life. You've got an input. It's not just happening to you. Yeah, that's one of the key things, isn't it? We feel that life is happening to us as opposed to, oh, this is where we're at. Now, what am I going to create? How am I going to make the most of this where I'm at right now? That's right. And so how we perceive it is also how we receive it. If I'm thinking that this world is just made for me, that's quite different. Then I'm happy to receive all the goods it's delivering. And I'm joyful to interact with all the opportunities that I have. If I perceive the world to be a place where I constantly have to fight for my ecological niche and watch out for whatever comes in the food chain to get hold of my tail, that's a very different way of going through life. It exists where it exists, but how I choose to interact is where I can determine the way the story goes to some extent. Yeah, you came me at that. <laughs> Totally, totally, because you're aging, you're changing. As I said, you come in wet, you go out dry, and in between magic happens. And how do you make that magic happen? You're part of that bigger repetitive event that constantly takes place. And one of the conscious things that we have is use your nose for what it's been designed for and use your mouth to communicate, to express. And as you're smiling so beautifully, you can seal the soft palate and all the breath goes on your nose while you're still communicating with your gorgeous teeth. I actually love that analogy. We come in wet and we go out dry. That's Yes, that makes so much sense. The moisture we keep ourselves, that sounds really bad. But anyway, the moisture we keep ourselves, the better our body will feel. All the people, they don't sense anymore when they should be drinking. They don't get the signal that they're thirsty. That so makes sense. logically, yeah. they don't get the signal. And you go, oh, my God. Now I'm having to remind them to drink. Well, no, actually, in a way, that's their way out. And then they lose, oh, I didn't eat today? No, you didn't. You know, how are you meant to go out? Well, you stop bringing resources in. So I've enjoyed myself, Karen, as always with you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I love our conversations, Eva.
thank you. I look forward to seeing you again. If there are any questions anybody wants to know anything, leave me a message on the phone or send me an email. I'm not so good on, on emails. I must say. I'd much rather talk to the person. <laughs> and I'm more than happy to pick it up. I'll put all of Eva's contact details on the web page so you'll be able to find her phone number and email address on the web page as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you.